2: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Since there's a spectrum that involves just normal human psychology, that means there's a stalker in all of us. Think about that. There's a stalker in all of us. And given the right set of circumstances, I'm not saying we all will become violent, but we all can come to the extreme form.
0: Welcome to Killer Questions with Darren Carp. I'm your host, Darren Carp, And today we're talking about the tragic murder of Hollywood sweetheart Rebecca Schaefer. Let's get right into it. On November 6, 1967, Rebecca Schaefer is born in Eugene, Oregon, to Dr. Benson and Dana Schaefer. Benson works as a child psychologist, while Dana works as a writing professor. Rebecca's childhood dream is to become a rabbi until she begins junior high school and begins a modeling career. Throughout her teen years, Rebecca appears in commercials and magazines. Then just a few months before her 18th birthday, Rebecca moves from Oregon to New York City to pursue a career as a professional model. During her first few years in the city, Rebecca lands minor roles in commercials and television shows, but nothing that feels like her big break. But in 1986, a then 19-year-old Rebecca did land the role of Patty in a CBS sitcom called My Sister Sam. Though she plays co-star to amazing Pam Dauber, the part introduces her to the world. Now, while Rebecca enjoys her first ever consistent acting job, there are a few downsides of her career that she didn't anticipate. Namely, unwanted attention from her fans. On January 2nd, 1970, John Bardo was born in Tucson, Arizona, and is the youngest of seven children. His parents are both physically and mentally abusive to their children, and Bardo grows up with some major behavioral issues. He's even described by one of his high school teachers as a, quote, a time bomb on the verge of exploding. Now, Bardo has a habit of developing obsessions with celebrities, mostly pop icons like Madonna and Tiffany at the time. But once he sees an episode of My Sister Sam... His favorite pastime becomes writing Rebecca love letters and sending her gifts. Sometimes he even writes back. He's sure that if they ever meet, Rebecca will fall in love with his devotion to her. After all, he's her number one fan. As the years pass, John grows unsatisfied with simply writing letters and makes it his mission to meet Rebecca in person. However, when Bardo is finally forced to face the reality that Rebecca is a famous actress who receives thousands of fan letters, he becomes angry and decides that if he can't have Rebecca, nobody can. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. James Harran, researcher and author of the book Celebrity Worshippers Inside the Minds of Stargazers. Now, I've seen and heard about fans doing some really crazy things, but Dr. James knows all the ins and outs of Rebecca's story because he spent years studying why people like John Bardo become totally obsessed with celebrities. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to pick his brain about this absolutely insane case. Dr. James, who has given me permission to call him, Jim, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you. There's a lot to get into, especially in today's age with social media. It just feels like we're kind of close to celebrities now than we ever were. But I want to start off a little bit. What drew you to Rebecca Schaefer's case? What is your personal connection to this story?
1: Well, I have no personal connection to the case, but it's one of many cases that I studied as part of a larger research program on the psychology of celebrity worship. So this was back in 1998 through 2002. We did some initial research to try to understand Why do fans who don't know these celebrities, why do they feel so connected to them as if they're family members? Uh, So delving into that topic, this was one of the cases that came up as the poster child of how that can go wrong.
0: Wow. The poster child case. I'm so excited you're here because I really have a lot of questions and I'm kind of fascinated about how people grew up and how really it's nature-nurture and how it kind of really affects their evolution as a person. And, you know, one thing we know about Robert John Bardo is that he grew up in an abusive household. He, You know, he had a lot of siblings, a lot of sisters, a lot of brothers. Have you found in your research any correlation between abuse victims and hyperfixation?
1: Yes and no. Uh, You have to understand when it comes to just general childhood trauma. And that could be physical abuse, sexual abuse. It could be other things as well. It doesn't have to be uh, the more extreme cases. Trauma can come from just injuries, illness even. But when people go through childhood trauma, they tend to develop what we call dissociative tendencies. They tend to have fantasy proneness later in life. It's probably a coping mechanism, a chance for them to dissociate from the feelings and the memories of those early events. But childhood abuse does come into play with celebrity worship in other ways. We know that if individuals, fans later in life that take these things too far, they're not random individuals. These are people that feel disconnected from their social milieus. They have Mm. family and friends, but they don't feel a sense of real attachment or intimacy for various reasons. Childhood trauma, abuse, unstable homes can certainly contribute to that.
0: Digging into Bardo's young life and childhood, what sort of psychiatric treatment did he receive? Do we know of anything that he received?
1: Well, it is interesting about his early life. We have some reports, but it's hard to verify what is absolutely true or what the details are. Remember, there were, you know, court cases about this. So there there is evidence on file somewhere that speaks to his early experiences. But we know a couple of things. One, we know that his fantasy proneness started early in life. He actually had a fantasy relationship with a teacher. Hmm. So this was not what we saw with Rebecca Schaefer. Didn't start with Rebecca Schaefer. And he did have what were described as severe emotional problems. So we don't know all of the ins and outs, but my sense is he had psychiatric issues at the very least.
0: Is he ever formally diagnosed with mental illness? I mean, obviously, in 2022, we're looking back now multiple decades, and I think mental illness was never really covered back then in the same way that maybe it's covered now or there was certainly more stigma around it. Do we know if he was ever diagnosed with anything like that?
1: You know, if he was, I don't recall. Um, I've done research on this and I never saw in any of the official documentation a psychiatric diagnosis. It's always referred to from what I've read as emotional problems, but it's always with the adjective severe in front of it. So right. that, and the fact that it started early in life and it continued through his life, that probably wasn't just some situational stress, but this to a social scientist with a clinical background, that seems to suggest we might be dealing with some form of a delusional disorder, uh, maybe like a schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenia. But who knows?
0: You know, in today's society, certainly colloquially, among my friends, when they're going on dates, we always talk about, like, what are the red flags? What do you see? What's a red flag of somebody? And then with gun restrictions, we have red flag laws. And in terms of red flags for you, I know there's a spectrum. So it's probably hard to, like, pinpoint one particular area where we could stop this from happening. But... Is there any behavior to sort of identify early on before someone becomes this violent stalker type uh, that friends and family should kind of be looking out for? I mean, would doctors today see any of his actions as potential red flags when he was a kid?
1: Oh, sure, especially in today's environment where there is a hyper attention to any form of aggression and violence, right? So we're looking for those early warning signs that turn into school shooters, that turn into delusional people, that turn into violent offenders. We know from our psychological research that, well, there's a there, There's some good news and bad news here, okay? Nobody starts off being a stalker. No one starts off at the it's extreme good. forms. There is a the continuum of celebrity worship. It starts off actually with healthy forms And it gradually progresses to more pathological expressions. So we can intervene. That's the good news. The bad news is since there's a spectrum that involves just normal human psychology, that means there's a stalker in all of us. Think about that. There's a stalker in all of us. And given the right set of circumstances, I'm not saying we all will become violent, but we all can come to the extreme form, similar to where Bardo was.
0: In 1986, a 16-year-old John Bardo starts watching My Sister Sam and becomes fixated on Rebecca's character, Patty. He builds a shrine to Rebecca in his bedroom and starts writing her letters. At first, Rebecca responds kindly to the fan mail. She writes Bardo back, telling him that his letter was the most beautiful one she's ever received, signing it with a heart and the phrase, with love, from Rebecca. In June of 1987, 17-year-old Bardo travels to Burbank studio in an attempt to make contact while she films the sitcom. With him, he brings a bouquet of roses and a teddy bear as gifts for Rebecca. However, John is denied entry by the studio guards and does not get a chance to give her the gifts. See, I'm always annoyed by the security at the front gates just because it takes forever. You got to show nine IDs. You have to give them, you know, your birth certificate. Uh, And never in this case have I been more happy that security exists at all these places. So thank you for that. The following month, Bardo returns to Burbank Studios to try and make contact again. This time, he comes armed with a knife instead of gifts. He's denied entry, thank God, once again, and goes home without meeting Rebecca. However, Bardo's not deterred by his inability to meet Rebecca and continually sends her love letters. Investigators later find a diary entry following the second attempt, where Bardo recounts his frustrations about the incident. The entry includes the phrase... I don't lose, period. John decorates his room with photos of Rebecca and even talks to his family about his mounting obsession. Okay, Jim, admittedly, I had posters of Derek Cheater on my walls. I had a life-size cutout of him, cardboard cutout of him. How do we put this in context? Is there a healthy versus unhealthy version of celebrity worship? Please, please tell me that there is.
1: To really put those warning signs into context, you have to understand what the trajectory of celebrity worship is. The first level of celebrity worship that everybody is at, we call it the entertainment social phase or stage. Think of it like the first rung on a ladder. Everyone is there and you get fulfillment in two ways, escapism and entertainment, and sometimes to an extent inspiration, but then you can turn it off. But at a certain point, the fix for certain people, isn't enough. What used to give you a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment reached a point of tolerance. And just like tolerance of a drug, you need a little bit more of the fix to get that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And so at a certain point for certain people, if the conditions are right, they move from the entertainment phase to what we call the intense personal phase. Now, this isn't where you leave one phase for another. It's you build on top of the first phase. And this is where celebrity worship stops being voluntary. This is where people start endorsing questionnaire statements like this. I have frequent thoughts about my favorite celebrity, even when I don't want to. So this is no longer voluntary. You start seeing a sense of addiction start coming into play. You also start seeing a mesh between that person's identity and that of the celebrities. Also, in this phase, people start feeling a weird sense of connection, almost like a symbiotic relationship. They start endorsing other questionnaire statements like, if something good or bad happens to my favorite celebrity, I feel as if it happens to me. Mm. So, that notion of connection, which started as entertainment, a sense of escapism, transforms into something that a person doesn't just want. Now they need it. John Bardo went through that, but he didn't stop at that phase because there's a third level. It's called the borderline pathological phase. <laughs> and the name kind of gives it away. Okay? I was going to say, yeah, it seems
0: intense. Yes. It's
1: intense because not only are you building on the first two, there's an added component. Not only do people believe they have a sense of connection and a sense of personal knowledge about their favorite celebrity. Now they are willing to act on that belief. So now you start seeing impulsivity come into play. And this is where people start spending a lot of money on memorabilia to feel Mm. connected. They start building shrines to their favorite celebrity. That can take the form of scrapbooks, uh, memorabilia, autographs, mementos. But then you also start seeing them starting to act in a more extreme ways where they want to physically connect with their favorite celebrity. It's not enough to have knowledge about them. Now they want to meet them. They want to now sort of stop having the relationship be one way and have it be two ways, right. and that's when people start going out of their ways to collect autographs and persons, sometimes try to find out where they live, try to make contact where they get to know that person and introduce themselves. And then that's where you see the more extreme forms of stalking and sometimes even violence.
0: Wow. I mean, that was so well explained, obviously. If we're looking at this as three rungs of the ladder, whereas the first rung is, I would say, almost 100% of people. The first rung feels very commonplace, but how common is it for fans to get to that second rung and then third rung? I mean, how common is it for fans to show up at celebrities' places of work? And on the flip side, is that is that something that Rebecca felt and dealt with often?
1: Well, Every celebrity, if they are successful, they have fans. In fact, there's sort of a double-edged sword here, right? Now, we know from research that about 75% or plus of the general population are at least at the first rung of the ladder, the entertainment social phase. They're using celebrity worship as a form of escapism or entertainment, but a healthy one. But we also know that about a third of the general population – are at least at stage two or higher.
0: Okay, now I work for a very high profile man who I've dealt with a number of different instances of stalkers and people feeling like they're so close to Andy. This is Andy Cohen now. In general, I have dealt with a lot of people that are, I'll say, overly familiar, if that is the right term here. I'm just going to try and be nice. But so I'm kind of let's flip it. What courses of actions do celebrities take when faced with fans or what should they take when faced with fans who persistently try to make contact in person? Because to your point, that feeling of rejection is going to turn the people like Bardo's if they're at that third rung of that ladder, probably into violent criminals. And so. Is there a way for the celebrity to possibly prevent that or what should they do when faced with this?
1: Yeah, that's tough. And actually, probably information is filtered to the actual celebrities, the publicists, the managers. They probably have wind of issues well before the celebrity does. And it also might be questionable how much of that celebrity has control over his or her image, the marketing machine behind it but, and this actually might speak to Andy Cohen too. This isn't criticism. All right. But Andy has done what a lot of other celebrities have done. And that is they regularly share information about their personal lives. Yep. Whether it's, I got married, I've adopted a child. Um, I went here for vacation. These are the clothes I wear. This is the food I eat. Now that on one hand seems innocent enough. You're just trying to open up and share you're trying to give fans a little bit of the behind the scenes feel and that doesn't seem like it would be harmful and it wouldn't be for 75 percent of the general population that are only at the entertainment social phase but for the other people that are feeling as if they have a close personal connection that they're in a real relationship any morsel of personal information gives that person that fanatic a sense of intimacy Mm. So there's a fine line between sharing information and encouraging a fantasy, an illusion of intimacy.
0: Okay, so jumping back into our story, by 1989, this is like year three of Bardo's Obsession. Rebecca is cast as Zandra Lipkin in the comedic film Class Struggle. The film is released in June and features a scene where Rebecca has sex with another actor. But as Rebecca's number one fan, John watches the film and is enraged by this scene in particular. He wants Rebecca to remain innocent and feels that she ought to be punished for not doing so. Watching this film seems to push Bardo off the deep end. He starts bombarding Rebecca with an inordinate amount of love letters and papering the walls of his room with her photos. He also sends a letter to his sister in Tennessee writing that if he can't have Rebecca, nobody can. Following this letter, Bardo draws a diagram of Rebecca's body and marks down where he plans to one day shoot her. This is so eerie. John attempts to purchase a gun, but he's refused sale when he reveals his history of mental illness. However, he is able to work around this loophole by asking his brother to purchase the gun for him. At least some of John's family, John Bardo's family, knows about his obsession with Rebecca. You know, we mentioned his room. He had pictures. He was writing letters. He was documenting everything. Do any of his family members attempt to intervene? Does any of his family members say anything to him about this obsession?
1: From what I've learned, no. Uh, Or if they have, it hasn't been made public. But remember, he's in a troubled household and he's escaping to this room um, so maybe they just left him alone, and maybe right. he only couched it in terms of how much he likes her, how much he you know gets a sense of relief, uh, how much his problems go away, uh, almost like a daydream when he's watching my sister Sam. Right. But actually, this is one of the telltale signs when people start moving from the voluntary, healthy phase of celebrity worship to where people start feeling an unusual connection and sense of relationship to their target celebrity. And they also start feeling compelled to learn as much as they can about the personal lives of their favorite celebrities. So they start withdrawing from real relationships and they start investing in fantasy ones. And that should be the first red flag that everyone can see.
0: And what should individuals do if they suspect a family member or a friend or someone close to them is kind of headed down this path of one sided obsession and fanaticism? Who do they
1: tell? What do they do? Yeah, it can also depend on just how close of a relationship do you have with the person and uh, are they easily accessible to you? Is this someone that you interact with constantly? Because if so, you'll know changes in their behavior. We know that when people start become addicted to drugs, there are very clear changes in their behavior and their mood that people pick up on. So just looking for very clear shifts in a person's behavior, especially where they start to seem more withdrawn less engaged, start asking questions, start asking them, Hey, why are you so enamored with this celebrity? Do they give you a sense of, you know what, this person is the only one that understands me. I only feel a sense of relief or calm when I watch this show. When you start hearing things that are a little bit more specific and where a person gives a sense of self-medication From this individual, we have a problem. And if you have access to their their rooms or maybe their phones where you can start seeing how much of their gallery photos are snapshots or downloads or screen saves of websites or their pictures of this favorite celebrity? How much of their room is devoted to memorabilia, mementos, or cues of this person? You can start seeing how much of their world, digital or physical worlds, are dominated by this person, and in other words, this relationship. Look at their environment, start seeing if you see some dramatic shift.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner.
0: A lot of the cases that I cover here on this podcast tend to do with maybe even a who done it or the 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 sentencing that they received. I have a lot of questions about the criminal justice system. There's no doubt here who killed Rebecca Schaefer. We know this. He is 100% guilty of killing her, but the questions that really surround this case for me are really of could it have been prevented? Could there have been something that happened in Robert John Bardo's life that would have maybe caused a different outcome for Rebecca Schaefer? In your expert opinion, could this horrible crime have been prevented if the mental health decline was identified earlier, either with friends or family?
1: Well, the simple answer is yes, of course it is. Theoretically, people could have recognized that there was an issue they could have intervened. The fact is, it seemed like he maybe was already on the trajectory for extreme celebrity worship, but the propeller behind that was the mental illness that he was dealing with. Now, granted, we only know so much now about celebrity worship, and that's only come in the last 20-some years. So the signs and symptoms, the special, the nuances, the hints, that knowledge wasn't known in 1989 when this tragic case occurred. Had he been in an environment that was more stable, maybe that could have stunted some of the more delusional aspects, the impulsivity there. People could have seen that, that he's making these repeated trips to the film lot. He's asking people around LA, where does Rebecca Schaefer live? He's writing letters. They could have seen that and that would have stood out as odd. They certainly could have intervened, asked questions, maybe try to connect him with some sort of a resource to make sense of why he felt this deep sense of attachment and why it propelled him to do what he was doing before it got so extreme. So, yes, theoretically, of course, this didn't have to happen. Practically, I don't know if the environment or the resources were there in his life to really prevent it.
0: Do we know why John's brother agreed to buy him a gun? Does John lie about why he wants it? Does his brother not ask? Do we know kind of how that trade-off of the gun happened? Great question.
1: I wish I could tell you I had all the ins and outs of of how did he obtain the gun. He obviously had enough awareness to know that he couldn't get one himself, right? Because.
0: Right. So he knew there was some level of knowing something.
1: He knew. So even in the case of John Bardo, it's, it's not that we can say, oh, his his mental illness. I'm sorry, that doesn't clear him of accountability. He had enough of awareness of the implications of both his condition and what he needed to do. He had forethought to this. This wasn't just a crime of passion. This was a crime of planning. This is clearly more than just mental illness at play.
0: On July 17th, 1989, John calls Rebecca's agent to ask for her home address. The agent refuses to give that information. Thank God! Someone's doing their job. John then roams the streets of Los Angeles, showing Rebecca's photograph to random people, asking if they know where she lives. When searching this way gets him nowhere, John pays a private investigator $250 to help find Rebecca's home address. The private investigator that Bardo hires is able to locate Rebecca's address through DMV records. Okay, get this. At this time, anyone can walk into the California DMV and pay just $1 to obtain the home address of anyone with a state driver's license simply by filling out a form with the person's name and the way they intend to use that information. The address is just handed to them on the spot. I'm sure no one has ever lied about their intent for using these addresses ever before in a form. It's kind of crazy. But the private detective fills out the DMV paperwork, obtains Rebecca's address, and passes it along to Bardo. On July 18th, Bardo visits Rebecca's apartment... 21-year-old Rebecca is at home awaiting delivery of a new script. She has just been cast as Mary Corleone in The Godfather 3, a role that might very well be the big break she's been dreaming of. This is a huge movie. When her doorbell rings, Rebecca opens her apartment door to 19-year-old Bardo. And he's carrying an autographed photo of Rebecca and claims to be her biggest fan. The two speak for a few minutes. Not surprisingly, Rebecca is... A little repulsed, not flattered by John tracking her down to pay her an unwelcome visit. It's a, a little scary, especially for a woman home by herself here, to just be approached like this. Now, Rebecca ends the interaction and closes the apartment door. Later that same day, Barter returns to Rebecca's apartment. This time, he carries a 357 handgun instead of a photo. And when Rebecca answers the door to John again, she's upset and tells him to leave. He pulls the gun out of his bag, shoots her point blank before fleeing the building. Bardo later recounts the meeting, stating, quote, She had this kid voice, sounded like a little brat or something, said I was wasting her time. Wasting her time? No matter what, I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan, you know? I grab the door, gun still in the bag, I grab it by the trigger, I come around and kapow. And she's like screaming, ah, screaming why, ah, and it's like, oh God, end quote. Rebecca's neighbor hears gunshots and comes to investigate. He finds Rebecca's body and calls 911. Rebecca is rushed to the hospital, where she is pronounced dead 30 minutes after being shot. Do we know why the private investigator agreed to help John track down a celebrity address? Is this common in L.A. at the time? And has the law sort of changed to make this illegal now? Because... This is a little scary that you could just, at least back in the day, hire a P.I.
1: Absolutely. And it hasn't not just with celebrities, but just stalker laws in general. In general, Right. Exactly. Most private investigators, one of the first questions are going to ask you if you go to them to say, hey, can you tell me where so-and-so lives or can you give me information about so-and-so's, you know, financial history, personal history records? They're going to say, why do you want that information? Okay, and that's not a random question. So, yeah, back in then, you know, fans always were eager to see where celebrities lived, what their private lives were like. There's an entire industry to this day of busloads of people being taken through celebrity neighborhoods and -and so-and-so lives here and -and so-and-so used to live there. Um, So this is still a booming industry. So for a private investigator at that time to be told a story and i don't know exactly what story maybe the investigator was told but it's perfectly reasonable john could have said hey you know i i just want to get an autograph i just want to get a picture and they just keep refusing me at the film lot i don't have access i don't have security clearance so he probably came across as harmless remember if he was manipulative enough to know how to get around gun laws he probably was manipulative to know how to present himself just as a eager fan that wanted a signed photo So I don't know the exact situation, but I could imagine at that time with the laws being the way they were, there could be a very easy cover story to get that information.
0: And so given the fact that this was, quote unquote, legal at the time, the P.I. is not going to face any charges. But nowadays they would, I assume, to try and find a celebrity address of I mean, social media throws a wrench into this entire thing because there are context clues in people's social media that might give away kind of where they live and this and that. But a PI would face charges today for doing that, right? Oh, I, I
1: they they most certainly could, assuming the circumstances of sure. that, you know. Right. But let's face it, doxing is a phenomena that occurs outside of even celebrity culture. So this yeah. is a problem. Even if you think you have privacy, um, you, don't. No, you you really don't. Not in today's ultimately socially connected world but especially for celebrities, because celebrities are always trying to remain relevant to their fans. So they're always giving clues and knowledge about their personal lives, and inadvertently, you also can tip your hand and and give clues to the wrong people.
0: The day after Rebecca's death, the Tucson police received several 911 calls about a man running around on Interstate 10. The man is John Bardo, who seems to be trying to intentionally get hit by a car. When police apprehend Bardo, he confesses to Rebecca's murder immediately. An authority send his photo to L.A. and witnesses from the murder scene confirm his identity. When John's sister learns of Rebecca's death, she's suspicious and immediately contacts the police about her brother's obsession. Remember, she got that letter from him and her ears are probably perked now. Bardo is extradited back to California and charged with capital murder. The prosecution team is actually led by Marcia Clark, who will lead the prosecution team in the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995. John is tried in a non-jury courtroom. During the trial, it is revealed that Bardo suffers from schizophrenia. The defense claims that his mental illness is what drove him to kill. And on December 20th, 1991, Bardo was found guilty of Rebecca's murder. He is sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. One year after the murder, Bardo gives an interview where he states, quote, I was a fan of Rebecca's and I may have carried it too far, but a lot of things have appeared in the press to make me out to be a monster. If I had one wish where if it was to ever come true, it would be for Rebecca Schaefer to be alive today, end quote. Now, some armchair detectives theorize that John hyperfixates on Rebecca and chose to murder her in order to become famous. After all, there are some notable similarities between Rebecca's killing and another famous murder the assassination of John Lennon by Mark David Chapman. When he shoots Rebecca, Bardo reportedly carries a copy of Catcher in the Rye, just like Chapman does when he shoots Lennon. In an interview, John insists that this is pure coincidence and goes on to completely refute the idea that he murdered Rebecca in order to garner fame. He states, quote, the idea I killed her for fame is totally ridiculous. I do realize the magnitude of what I've done. I don't think it needs to be compounded by a bunch of lies because she's an actress. However, Mark David Chapman has given interviews where he confirms he received letters from John prior to Rebecca's murder asking about his life in prison. Very curious, if you ask me. John Bardo is tried in a non-jury courtroom. How does he end up with this sort of trial instead of a traditional jury trial? Do we know?
1: Again, I wish I could tell you all the ins and outs of that. I don't. Um, I'm not surprised, though, at that. Um, it, it's hard to have a jury of your peers when there is a, a very unique case and where there's probably a very clear mental health component. His lawyers, first and foremost, were arguing a psychiatric defense.
0: Schizophrenia. Yes,
1: exactly. Yes. Um, So but schizophrenia itself is kind of a generic term. It certainly means something to a psychiatrist, um, but it can have all sorts of meanings. And there's different forms of schizophrenia. And so this may have been the kind of case where there was a lot of nuance, a lot of sensitive privacy issues on both sides of the fence, that maybe this was something that you didn't want to fan the flames and have it be a very public kind of case trial, that maybe this is something more of a bench trial.
0: You know, John's defense team cites his schizophrenia. I'm using air quotes here because it obviously is a very big uh, umbrella term as -hmm. the reason why he sort of killed Rebecca. Do we know if he was ever even formally diagnosed with schizophrenia or was this probably just the defense team's way of garnering empathy for this killer, for lack of a better term?
1: The most uh, responsible way for me to answer that is I, I don't know if he was formally diagnosed I don't know that. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was, especially if the defense team retained a psychiatrist to obtain that diagnosis. And it's easy for me to see how that kind of diagnosis could come about.
0: I sort of have another hypothetical or potential question for you, because, you know, in the true crime world, especially we see a lot of copycat murders, you know, Several people claim that they were the Zodiac Killer and things like this. And in the beginning of this podcast, we talked about John Hinckley. We talked about John Lennon's murderer. I'm wondering for you, do you believe any other high profile murders, John Lennon, Selena, for example, factor into Bardo's decision to kill Rebecca to sort of get that recognition that he always was looking for?
1: It's not far fetched to think that there could have been somewhat of a, we call it a contagion effect. Sometimes it's called the hitchhiker effect, Mm -hmm. um, where people see an event, they see, oh, someone gets attention from that. Uh, And remember, what do people want? They want attention. They want acknowledgement. They want recognition. They want a sense of fulfillment. And if we can't get it in healthy ways, people will seek it in unhealthy ways. Um, So I can imagine how if things are reported in the news, people can get certain forms of inspiration of, oh. So-and-so actually reached out to their favorite celebrity and made contact. Well, if that person could do it with someone like John Lennon
0: or Ronald Reagan, I could do that with someone like Rebecca Schaefer. You know, Rebecca's death clearly could have been prevented. This is something you and I have sort of said. Of course, 100 yes. percent of the blame is on John Bardo. And I, and I want to make that clear. But are there other key people in the periphery whose intervention could have helped John and potentially saved Rebecca's life that you kind of see in this case that stand out to you?
1: oh, there's people that probably were in a position to recognize certain behavior that was just not normal. Um, but that isn't to say, though, that I'm going to put any accountability on them, that if, if only they had done something, and so Rebecca Schaefer's death is also at their hands, I, I won't go that far. But certainly, John Bardo's family was in a position to know he was withdrawing and that he was putting an overemphasis on this fantasy relationship. When you look at how often maybe he was at the film lot, For my sister, Sam, maybe if there was a security guard that consistently saw this person repeatedly try to get in, even though this person was repeatedly rejected, that very well could have been the sign for that security guard who probably was no stranger to seeing fanatics, right, trying to get in saying, this person seems persistent, This person seems impulsive. Maybe I should get a photo. Maybe I should take his name. Maybe I should connect him with somebody, or maybe bring another person in on this.
0: The same year Rebecca is killed, four other women in Orange County are murdered by men they have taken restraining orders out against. Rebecca's death combined with these four other killings result in California passing the country's first ever anti-stalking laws. It's pretty historic. In 1994, the state of California passes the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, a law that prevents the DMV from releasing private addresses. Thank the heavens, my God. On July 27, 2007, Bardo was stabbed 11 times by a fellow inmate. He survives the attack. It is unclear as to whether the stabbing is connected in any way to Rebecca's murder. Today, 52-year-old John is still incarcerated in an Avenal State Prison in Kings County, California. One last question for you. If, if I could create this perfect scenario for you where if you could get Bardo in front of you and you could ask one question and I could guarantee that whatever he was going to say was the 100 percent truth and you didn't have to question it. What's the one question you think you'd ask John Bardo about this case specifically?
1: Why Rebecca Schaefer? Hmm. Because he had other fantasy relationships, but this is the one he acted on. There was something about her. And I, as a social scientist, can look at the cold, hard facts and say she was on a regular TV program. She was promoted regularly in the press. She was very attractive, close to his age. So there's a lot of demographic social factors at play that I can see why he may have been attracted and pursued her. But I also know that there's deep psychological reasons why fans latch onto certain stars. And it's not always apparent. And it's not always sexual. So there's something at a deeper psychological level. If I could have understood why Rebecca Schaefer, that probably could have given me some deeper understanding into just his psychology, how intense the situation really was, and possibly how to best intervene to prevent this.
0: Wow. Uh, you have given me so much to think about and so many signs just being in the world in general to kind of look out for. And even people who aren't in the celebrity world can sort of look out for because this can happen to any sort of authority figure or someone in your life. This isn't just celebrities. This does happen with doctors and teachers, et cetera. So, Jim, Dr. Jim, I got to send you off the appropriate title. You have been wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and breaking down this case with me. I 100% appreciate it, and you are wonderful. Thank you again for your time. My pleasure. For you guys listening to the show, what are your killer questions about this case? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. I'm Darren Karp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. For even more true crime from ID, and you want that, head to Discovery Plus. Go to discoveryplus.com/killerquestions to start your seven-day free trial today. That's discoveryplus.com/killerquestions. Terms apply.